Aloha, it is Joe, aka the Curvy Geeky Fangirl, and I am back with Curvy Geeky Fangirl Podcast, the podcast that goes over all of the TV shows that I watch, films, sometimes books occasionally, basically a nice weekly geek review of all the things that I'm able to absorb during my busy schedules. So as you know, you can find me over on Instagram, Twitter, and my website, curvygeekyfangirl.com. You can find this podcast on the Anchor app iTunes, Google Play Music, I think there's a Google Podcast, pretty sure there is, Stitcher, and a bunch of other places where you listen to podcasts, more than likely, I'm making my way there, if I'm not there already. And uh, I also do contributions for forallnerds.com. I have, either officially or unofficially, I don't know, it was in conversation, have been appointed the fashion and lifestyle editor for forallnerds.com. So if you guys get a chance to check it out, two new articles of mine have been posted for the week. Absorb it, take it in, let me know what you think about it. It still talks about all things geek in a fashion lifestyle kind of area. Because sure, why not? So this week, I'm actually recording this like the weekend after the Thanksgiving holiday. So I've had a little time to catch up. I've been on a mini hiatus. So trying to catch these shows, got caught up, ready to talk about them. You know, I'm going into DC TV. I'll be talking about Supergirl, Black Lightning, The Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, Titans. I'm also gonna be talking about that American Horror Story Apocalypse finale, Midnight Texas, and some some holiday cheer movies that have been coming out. Like I said, it's we're at the end of Thanksgiving. It's getting close to December. It's uh, literally a week away right now. And Netflix is not disappointing. They're already dropping holiday movies. And I've got some feelings on some of the originals that they dropped. So I'm going to be talking about those as well. I believe one is called The Holiday Calendar or The Advent Calendar. It's the girl from... Vampire Diaries is in it, the girl who plays Bonnie. And then we've also got the Vanessa Hudgens vehicle, Princess Switch, or the Princess Switch. One of those, anyway, I will have this all straight when I get to them, but we're gonna be talking about all of that in this podcast. Uh, Please, please rate and subscribe wherever you're listening to this. The ratings help me out, subscribing helps me out. I'm just saying, if you could do a girl solid, it'd be beneficial for everybody around, you know. It lets me know we're listening. It lets me know what you wanna talk about. All the things. So, please take a minute to, there to just rate and subscribe to this podcast. As always, we're gonna be talking about spoilers. Heavy duty spoilers for everything I'm going over. Cause I'm not scared of spoilers, but I know some other people are more hesitant. They're not, they're not ready to welcome spoilerage like that. So if you're one of those people, Pause it here, catch up, come back, and we're going to get started. I'm going to be talking about all the shows that went off or showed up either the week of Thanksgiving or slightly the week before, depending on how that scheduling dropped for them. And we'll jump right into it with Supergirl right after this. All right, I'm going to be jumping right into Supergirl first. See, the thing about Supergirl is that uh, they've been doing this storyline where they're basically talking about what's going on in our real life world right now. 
and it's scary as hell. So that's that's happening and it's continuing. So that's what's happening on Supergirl. The episode I didn't cover, I feel was a good episode to miss. It was, it felt like a standalone episode. It was an episode revolving around an alien healer who required a gem in his chest to work, otherwise he would die. Uh, also, he apparently spurned his human lover uh, way back when, and uh, she stayed mad about that. They had a whole daughter, which he may or may not have been aware of at an earlier point. I think he finds out like a little bit later that he's got a daughter after they've already broken up. Uh, but this woman is just really mad and upset and wants him dead. So there's that. We spend most of the episode with Team Supergirl trying to figure out what's going on with him. I think we get a little bit of Jimmy stuff. We get a little bit of Lena stuff, but nothing too big and nothing of note. So now we're into the new episode. So new episode, I will say, pretty darn good. Pretty darn good, if I don't say so myself. Like Ben Lockwood, which is Sam Witter's character, has been escalating as crazy slowly and pragmatically, which is terrifying. Uh, in this particular episode, uh, we got very little of like Kara, Alex by themselves time. It was always in relation to what was happening with Agents of Liberty or what was going on between Alex and Brainy. So that, I shouldn't say that's nice, but it's it's a nice reprieve, especially from the last few seasons where it's been all focused either on Kara or in some dynamic on Alex. It's it's nice that we're kind of focusing on the other side players for a little bit. I take it. Uh, we did get oh, the whole debate thing that happened. So there's a whole point in the show where Jimmy is scheduled to debate Ben Lockwood and Lena wants him to use this debate as a platform to denounce this, the Agents of Liberty wholly since everybody knows he's Guardian and right now Agents of Liberty are touting Guardian as one of them. He's a man of the people, literally. He's a human man going up against aliens and other, other. well, no, they only know aliens. They think they kind of know about metas, but it's mostly aliens in this show. Uh, but he's going up against aliens and he's winning. And they're seeing that as like a salad. And it's like, yeah, he's one of us. He's on our team. Jimmy, of course, is like, no, I'm not hateful like these guys. But he's also doing dumb Jimmy right now where he's like, there's a way for me to meet them halfway if I don't denounce them right away. I don't, I don't understand his plan. And neither does Lena. So she's like, you need to denounce them at this little meetup. Granted, this is a debate that Jimmy didn't choose. He didn't schedule himself to go to this debate. Lena did. She full gung-ho is controlling a lot of the aspects of their dating life and their personal lives. She's, it's one of those where like her intentions, I don't even want to say her intentions are pure because they're kind of not. She's very much like, I care about this person. I love this person. Therefore, I need to lock them into this box of things that I can control entirely in order to maintain our happiness. What's, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Is that wrong? It's definitely Luther logic and clearly it's not going to pan out. So we see that. Um, but yeah, so they have that debate. Jimmy straight up says, I'm not going to it. I'm not going to it. I've got another plan in the horizon, but the debate still has to happen. So Kara's like, well, I'll take your place. I'll go ahead and do this debate against Lockwood and, you know, try to take it from there. To Kara's credit, 
she was holding her own there for a little bit from the the bits we see which is i guess towards the tail end of the debate uh they've been doing a back and forth and Kara has been doing what seems to be a good job of redirecting all that hate into something positive for alien presence on earth so she's like you know this is why i have that article spread talking about aliens in national city you know, this is a time of Thanksgiving and the thing, everybody knows Thanksgiving is a time of family and friends and being thankful. And she tries to like sum it up like that. And then you got Ben's crazy ass taking a different stance. A, he knows the rule about having the last word, regardless of what was said prior to this last word. As long as he makes this last word good, doesn't matter if he was losing the debate up until now. And he gets her with this point of Thanksgiving. She brings up Thanksgiving and he uses it against her. And he's basically like, you know, depending on who you talk to, Thanksgiving's not always that great. It can also be known as the holiday for lies because, and we all know this from history, supposedly there was this grandiose dinner between uh, the indigenous people and these European settlers that had come to their area. And it was supposed to be like at the, a moment for them to break bread and broker peace. If you dive into the actual history of it, none of that actually occurred. There was no invitation sent out like that. It was not a nice little sit down. It was kind of like a, if it even happened in the first place, it was kind of more of a happenstance where like one group was like, well, let's get some food and do some stuff. And another group was like, yo, they are getting ready for war. Let's get them. And then realized, oh no, they're just trying to eat, but we watching you. So depending on where you're getting your intel from, but look into the actual meaning of Thanksgiving because it doesn't mean any of that. Ben has a point about it not meaning any of that. And granted, he twists the root of Thanksgiving to meet his agenda, which is that aliens should not be there. But damn it, if that logic doesn't sound good. Is it correct? No. But does that matter? No. So like you have him basically pointing out like, yeah, Thanksgiving was a time when you had one group of people who were already here trying to embrace or or even like acknowledge this other group that has now come and they got wiped the fuck out. They got wiped out. We all know the terrible, terrible tragedies that happened to the indigenous people here at the hands of these white folk who were just like, yep, colonization, here we go. And he's trying to parallel that with the aliens now coming on board. Underhanded and genius and terrible and scary as hell because you can use that argument. You hear people use that type of argument a lot when we're talking about what's going on now with immigration policies and the like. Show, this show, the show has its moments of glory and then it's got its moments of poop. So while we're still in the car Alex situation, a dragon comes up guys, a dragon. Towards the end of the episode, uh, Agents of Liberty are going full throttle with like the kill alien action plan that they have. They hit a house uh, where, it, even, I don't, at first I was like, is the guy an alien? But then they beat him pretty soundly and he doesn't change and then we find out that an alien that's at this house it turns out to be like the pet lizard that this little girl has and she's like spike help and it turns into a dragon a motherfucking dragon just takes to the sky in national city starts blowing fire granted it went after the agents of liberty that were attacking his family so there's that. But then you can quickly see how it get out of control. You've got Kara trying to wrangle a dragon. Of course she does it. I found it interesting that the show wrote into it that Alex re realizes that this is a pet and not to hurt it. 
and they wrote it in there. They roped it right in there so this little girl can get her pet dragon back. I'm not sure why, but I'll take it. I'll take it. With all of the craziness that was happening, why not have a dragon that's nice and a pet? I'll take it. What else? Oh, Ben Lockwood also gets his own show. So after all of that craziness goes down, he gets a call from the network where he was a guest at. And they're like, we need to give you your own show so you can continue to spread your hateful rhetoric. Ratings will be fantastic. And he's like, yeah. So that, yep, that madness is happening and also parallel to real life. So nightmares forever. We also have the Jimmy and Lena situation. Like I said, Lena is going full Luther and losing it. We found out, well, we know that she had the Haranel. So the Haranel is the rock that the Kryptonian witches were using in the previous season to get rain and her compatriots to come back for something. Um, But Lena knows there's a lot of power to this rock. So she's trying to use it for a good intention. She's trying to use it for medical purposes to help heal tumors or cancers or something of the like, except all of her testing is not working the way she wants it to. They keep trying different tests on these magical hearts that they're producing from somewhere with tumors on them and it's not working and she's just incinerating them. And then um, finally they reach a test where the tumors don't go away, but the heart doesn't burn up. Like they try to incinerate it and it stays exactly as it is. And Lena's like, perfect, let's get into human testing. Because of course, that's the next logical, logical step. It's not, it's not at all. But also this, the way it's framed in the show, when she reaches this point of the testing, this is already after A, her lies around Jimmy have unraveled and she's had to tell him the truth about how Guardian didn't have to face any legal charges from the DA. And also the dinner, the Thanksgiving dinner they had at Kara's where she basically kind of like, trial tested her ideas of creating a superhuman to also offset alien advances and everybody was like no you crazy you crazy why would we do this like why would you create a superhero serum for somebody and just have a have it be open you know you know it's a matter of time before somebody steals it and it's used for nefarious purposes like they're like, why would you do that? And she's like, well, you know, her whole reasoning, and this is something that she agrees with the Sons of, I want to call them Sons of Liberty, but I feel like that's a real group. Agents of Liberty, in that uh, if you're going to have a bunch of aliens on Earth with ridiculous ability, then you need to have humans also on Earth with access to ridiculous ability, apparently. And she's like, I agree. And I want to create a superhuman. And they were like, no, because <laughs> insane old people will become superhumans. We don't need that. And then she was just like, no, no. What if you chose only the right people? And then they were like, how the fuck do you choose the right? <laughs> like, What are you talking about? Who in their right mind is like, oh, well, I can tell crazy. This one's fine. And then this one's not. It's fine. They quickly call her out on the bullshit. And she's just like, I don't, well, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm Lena Luther. I have the privilege. I have the power. And I have the money. It's going to happen, guys. Basically. So, I mean, Lena's definitely going Luther right now. Even her fallout with Jimmy, there's a whole part in there where after her many plans to get Jimmy in whatever order she's trying to get him in, fail miserably. He tries to throw in her face that he can handle anything that's coming at him. Oh, because she's worried. She's worried about him getting too involved with the Agents of Liberty, as she rightfully should be, because Jimmy's an idiot and constantly needs supervision. But anyway, I will get to that next. 
But basically, she's telling him that to his face. She's like, I, you know, we can't trust you by yourself. You, you need help. You can't do this on your own. Don't do it. And he's like, I'm a grown ass man. I can definitely do this on my own. I didn't need your help to get out of the DA issues I had as guardian. Then I'm fine. And she was like, no, no, no. I definitely got you out of those issues with the DA. I gave him a bigger fish so he didn't have to go after you. And that was the deal. Yada, yada, yada. And you just see his face drop. And he's just like, ah, damn it. Like, I can't be with somebody I can't trust. Blah, 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 blah. Whatever. Beginning of the end for them. I say whatever because I'm not invested in this relationship. I also say whatever because I don't understand why Jimmy is dumb. So since we're talking about Jimmy, like I've said in previous episodes, yes, we have John Jones, a.k.a. Martian Manhunter, as a black character on the show, but... He is a Martian who pretends to be a black man on the show. So it's not like he was born a black man and is going to die a black man. He can literally change at will. And granted, they're trying to showcase that he refuses to change into a different person and therefore has an understanding of a lot of the racial inequalities that he faces, not only from his alien planet, because where he was facing it as a green alien, but also on Earth as a black man. And I find fault with the logic because he can literally change into anything. He can be a white man if he needs to be and get out of a dangerous situation. He doesn't have to be a black man. Also, he can fly and, you know, the telepathy situation. Like, he's got extra abilities in addition to this ability to change. Whereas Jimmy is just a regular old black man. But he's dumb as fuck. Like, he... I don't understand why somebody like him a highly educated black man would not see the parallels of hate group with the agents of liberty and why he wouldn't agree with Lena and be like, yeah, let me denounce these fools. Like, let me say, I want no part of their hateful rhetoric. Like there's a whole part where he's meeting up with an agent of liberty and this guy's got a dog and this dog is like, they're going on like a walkabout or something and then talking and every couple of feet, this dog is barking and looking at a house. And then he's like, the, and then the Agent of Liberty dude is making up an excuse to talk to his wife. Like, it's very obvious that he's up to something. But, a, but I guess for story's sake, we have to make Jimmy dumb and not realize what's going on, but be suspicious of it so that he notes it. And then later, too fucking late, realize that, oh yeah, this is what was happening. And then at the end of that, when he finally gets his wish to go talk to like a bigger point of contact for the Agents of Liberty organization, it's in the most sketchiest way possible. Like he meets up with the guy that he did his walkabout with and then another predator van shows up with a hood to put on Jimmy to take him away. And he's just like, well, I gotta do what I gotta do. So many things, so many things right now. It's like he didn't know civil the civil rights movement existed. It's like he never watched anything about that time period or he was just ignorant of it in the entire time none of this is raising flags for you bro not a thing not a one thing like i don't i don't understand what the how the show feel thinks that we should just go along with jimmy being this dumb i don't get that if anything he should have been like nah you take your predatory van and you're hanging Hoods, I don't need any of that, white people. I'm good. Just give me GPS directions. I will follow you in a truck like that. I don't need any of this extravagance. Anywho, 
Anywho, I mean, unfortunately, Jimmy has always been like a weaker story plot throughout the seasons of Supergirl consistently. Outside of like season one, I want to say like episode one, season one, his storyline has just been like going downhill. And I understand that we need a viewpoint into the Agents of Liberty. So we need somebody not necessarily neutral because Jimmy, I mean, as much crap as I give him, he's not neutral in it, but he does have way too much fucking trust in them. I don't understand why he wouldn't be more critical of what he's seeing and how he's being treated and all of the parallels. So there's that as well. Um, What else is going on? And then we've got, oh, Nia and Brainiac, the random plots. So Brainiac is a nice little bright spot for the show. He is bringing a lot of comedy relief that's needed for the episode. And we get to kind of see him fight in this one. So there's a whole scenario where they've got they've got houses and properties marked that are apparently run by aliens or living, you know, aliens are living in it so that, you know, these agents of liberty can attack them in their street clothes. They have a street uniform of a gray hoodie with a yellow star, gold mask and jeans. Um, I know, clever, super clever. Not clever at all. But anyway, Brainiac is part of the group to help foil this plan. He meets up with a bunch of them. I love that he's like, you need to go home before I have to beat you up with physics. (laughs) Not with his fists, but with physics. And that's exactly what he does. So as they go to attack him, he just knows how to counter move against this so that they end up hurting themselves. So he never lays a hand on anybody. And then he calls it a day. That was nice. It was a nice little movement. I don't understand what we're doing with the Nia storyline for some reason. They've introduced her into the season. She's supposed to be like this plucky intern, go-getter type S, very Kara, Kara, very Kara S type person. They had her be like the voice of reason and of um, morality for Jimmy. Again, I don't know why that conversation took place a few episodes back where she had to basically tell him you need to take a stand in all of the hate mongering that's happening right now or it's just going to get worse. And he was just like, why? So she also took that stand. She also helped stand up for Brainiac when there was a whole moment where um, the, the Luther tech stopped working where people were able to mask themselves another Luther idea to like, so they could blend in more with society by pretending to look human. Terrible things already in that. And you know, they went down so everybody could see his true alien form. And Neo was there to help like stand up for him and be like, just cause he's an alien doesn't mean like, I don't anyway, but now she's falling asleep at her desk. So we get these moments where she's like knocked out, falling asleep at her desk and then waking up and saying random things. She tells J- Jimmy and Kara that she's got the sleep thing. She doesn't call it narcolepsy. They call it narcolepsy. She says, I have the sleep thing. And she just says, yeah, when they say narcolepsy. (laughs) And then says, oh, I've been looking for a doctor, but I can't find one. Kara's like, oh, well, my mom's a doctor. And apparently she's just a doctor of everything because she knows all the doctors and she can help you (laughs) find a doctor with your sleep thing. Nia gets invited to the Thanksgiving dinner. She's having a whole conversation with Kara's mom. The, The OG Supergirl. It's very nice to see her whenever she comes. But uh, even Kara's mom is like, so uh, I heard you need a doctor. And then Nia's like, no, nah, I got a doctor. And then she makes up a name on the spot, quite obviously. And Kara's mom's like, okay, well, I guess that's resolved. And keeps it moving. 
I mean, they hint again towards towards the end of the episode of like, that's weird. Like she told us one thing and she's telling my mom another thing. Strange. And then, you know, we had the dragon to deal with. So they were a little busy. But I don't understand why we inserted this into this episode to have no resolution on it. So I don't. Are we building? I, I guess they're going to string that out. They're going to build that up somehow. I know that her character is based on a comic book character. I know that this particular character has some sort of ability. I want to say telepathic ability or empathic ability, something psychic. She has some kind of psychic ability. So is this what, is this how we're going to sneak that in? Like, this is why she keeps sleeping because the ability is coming. I don't, I don't understand. It's very awkward and it's weird. So that is happening. And that's going to sum it up for me for Supergirl. Supergirl was a heck of a ride. I still really love this central focus of radicalization happening so close to home, like in home, at home, happening at home when it comes to people that are different from you or who you say don't have never lived here before, therefore they have no rights type of thing. It's very interesting how they're swinging that. Sam Witter is killing the hell out of his character of Ben Lockwood. I'm very interested to see how the next episode goes. I'm hoping there's a new episode coming for this week coming up, but who knows? with the scheduling. Who knows how that works? So right after this, I'm going to be talking about Black Lightning and continue this DC TV recapping. What up, everybody? It is Joe, aka the Curvy Geeky Fangirl, and I just want to take a moment to talk to you guys about ForAllNerds.com. So you guys know, if you've been listening, I am a contributor, or was a contributor, to a lovely podcast slash pop culture media sensation called fanbros.com. They've recently gone through a name change because this one's just better. And it is called forallnerds.com. They are still doing the podcast also under the For All Nerds name. So you should definitely check it out if you get the chance. Your girl has recently been elevated in title. So I am now the fashion and lifestyle editor for forallnerds.com. So if you get the chance, absolutely take it. Go ahead and check it out. Check out the website. It's fancy and new. It's just so shiny and bright. I've got articles there. My first ever interview is there. It's done with Marcy Harrell, if you get the chance. I also have my regular fandom fashion breakdowns. And I'm trying to do something a little newer by including articles about where you can buy already ready-made geek fantastic outfits at stores that are centered around that dynamic. So check out forallnerds.com. Check out their podcast, For All Nerds. Get in on this geeky information, this geeky insight. It is told by geeks of color from the perspective of nerds of color because yes, all of the things and whatnot. All right, so we're gonna be talking about Black Lightning. Black Lightning, as always, is a bright spot for me in my week. I want to say the previous episode, again, I feel was a good episode to miss, uh, recapping wise. The biggest plot points of the previous episode was that Gamby seemed to be dead. His He got attacked, like out the gate, car exploded, they can't find him. So missing or dead, that. And seeing Jefferson's reaction to that, to losing another father figure. That would I mean, it was compelling. So we got that. Um, outside of that, I didn't care about anything else that was happening. Jen was doing her angst. Lynn was being dumb. Uh, Nissa was dealing with something that she had no business to make dealing with in the first place. It kind of just, you know, rinse and repeat. And then this episode just basically picked up where we left off in the previous episode. Only changes, now we know Gamby's alive. So we kick off the episode with knowing that Gamby is fine. I have been reading some comments in regarding to, regarding the pre, this last episode that just dropped. 
uh, talking about South Freeland. And some people were very confused as to why they had that resolution for Gamby so quickly. Was it really so quickly? We as viewers have been watching the show, at least from last season until now, knowing full well that Gamby is a man of many talents and it's going to take a lot to kill him. A lot. I highly doubt a drive-by on an armored vehicle, nonetheless, is going to be enough to stop him. So I wasn't surprised that he wasn't dead. I didn't think that was abrupt. I didn't think that was a waste of time. I think it was to further showcase, A, somebody's after Gamby. I'm pretty sure it's Tobias. Pretty sure. If not, it's definitely ASA. It's definitely the group he's working with. But but somebody's coming after him in a big way, in a major way. And he needs to find out what's going on. And in order to do that, he got to be dead for a little bit. We know this. That's, that's just spy stuff one-on-one. Um... What else? Oh, he ha- he's still there for for family lightning. He's still there for them. I love that. I love that he still has like a portable tracking system. <laughs> so when they, when they have alarms or when they're setting off alarms to like talk to each other using the system, he's also clued in into what's going on. So he's still able to see that Anissa's in way over her fucking head and, um, and is there just in case she needs the backup. He had a whole drone situation going to help take out people left and right as best he could with a drone did his best i'm not mad at it i enjoyed all of it i enjoyed all of this also that torture scene at the very beginning so after we find out gamby's alive uh we find out he's been torturing one of the people who attacked him one of the people from that truck and uh, we see him having already chopped off two of this man's fingers this man's sweaty he's bleeding he's shaky and he's just like looking at Gamby and he's just like, I can't believe you would do this in front of my family. And you're just like, oh shit. Like, I mean, Gamby's dark. I wouldn't put it past him to like round up the family and do something insane to this guy. But the family this man is talking about are these two little dogs, these two little fluffy dogs. I want to call them Yorkies, but I know they're not Yorkies. Shih Tzus? Little shit. I want to say shit, maybe Shih Tzus? The cutest little fluffy dogs with the little cutest, the cutest little faces and they have little bows in their hair. And it's just these two little Gabby dogs looking back at him. And Gabby kills that man. And then he apologizes to the dogs. I loved it. I loved all of it. I loved that he was like, sorry, ladies. Like, <laughs> just kept on with his business. I loved it all. That was for me. I loved it. Go, Gabby. Uh, Lynn. Lynn had quite the episode, I will say, on a non-petty front. Because you guys know how I feel about Lynn. If you don't know how I feel about Lynn, listen to previous episodes. On a non-petty front, though, for Lynn, a lot of stuff was happening that was out of her control on that one limited hand. I understood. I understood that, like, you know, she is somebody that likes to have an answer for something, for almost anything, really. That's her, that's her business. She's got several doctorates behind her name. She likes being able to get an answer. However, I have no empathy for how she got herself in this fucking situation in the first place. So Lynn had to deal with the fallout of trusting the wrong person. I still, I'm glad that we got to see the repercussions of Lynn's stupidity because it was never a good plan from the get-go. When we kicked off this new season, she's lying to an ASA agent she gets herself inserted as the head of the project for the green light babies the head she uses gamby to make herself the primary person to talk to about these green light babies and yes the intentions were good the intentions were 
for her to figure out a resolution, some kind of a gene therapy that was going to help these kids who were unstable because of green light. Like that was the plan. Cool. To throw a wrench into the works and, and probably just to fuck with her. That ASA agent she'd been lying to made her partner up with a criminal doctor who had previously been working on the same project, uh, but had been doing it nefariously. Like this woman has no care for life. She just wants to see what happens when stuff goes down. And that's all she cares about. And Lynn knew this. Lynn knew this going in. She kept warning the agent about how like we can't trust her. Yeah, 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 yeah. She knew all of this up front. We get to a point, I want to say in the previous episode, where the, this crazy doctor, this criminal doctor, Dr. Jace, she very plainly states that she don't give a damn about any of these kids in the pods. She just wants to see what happens and see if it works. Like, that's it. That's what, She's down with trial and error. If we lose a couple people, who cares? We got a room of them. So, like, we know that going in. We know that she doesn't care and she just wants to do what she can do what she wants to do she don't care lynn knows this so apparently lynn thought up a, a formula to help with the therapies for these kids she writes it up on this board the doctor all of a, all of a sudden it is abrupt it's not like a oh yes they've been learning and working together and trusting no it's abrupt she randomly is just like oh my god lynn this is amazing you solved it this is gonna fix everything lynn is a doctor she's a scientist she knows that you still have to test shit. You can't just be like, oh, done, resolved. And now we can move on to the next thing. But whatever. So they launch her theoretical gene therapy to these kids in the pods. And of course, it does not work. A good percentage of these kids die. I don't know if it's half or even more than half. I'm 60%. I just know they're left with like 14 pods out of the whatever many they had of kids. It's terrible. So now Lynn has to tell the grieving families that have had no contact with these kids since they went missing. Some of these families are families of the kids from the original Green Light Project from 30 some odd years ago, who are now like, what the fuck? Hope only to be dashed again. And then we also have the kids who got abducted last year and maybe a year or two before that. We've got their families to contend with as well. And these people have been put through it. This show does a really good job of, I don't want to say summarizing, but basically showing a small tidbit of what it's like to have no control in your own damn life at all. So you see the families of these kids and they're like, we need some fucking answers. You're telling us that, oh, the, and the way she announces the news is terrible. She's basically like, yeah, so uh, update on the green light situation. Some of these kids are dead and some of them are alive and we're not gonna tell you which is which, but we got counselors uh, if you want to try to dive into that information yourself. And like that's, of course the crowd gets upset. They're like, this wouldn't happen to white people. Very real reaction. And especially this one actor, this one actor they got to play a very concerned dad hit it out the box. He did an amazing job playing a frantic, desperate man trying to get information for his daughter. You see him, not, it's not even a verbal accosting that he does to Lynn. It's a reasonable question that he tosses at Lynn. Granted, over and over again, but super reasonable. Just like, where the fuck is my daughter? Is she one of the ones that are dead? Why can't you give us a straight answer? I'm talking to you, lady. And then we have Jennifer of all people. Jennifer of all the people. 
explaining to Lynn why everybody's looking at her. Because Lynn has this whole breakdown moment. She's like vomiting. She's just so distraught and she can't believe it. She has to deal with this and she doesn't understand how to get it fixed. And you got Jen throwing her own advice back in her mother's face. And it's just like, she's like, I'll be it. You're not the one who killed those kids. But you are the head of this department. You inserted yourself into this project and made yourself the lead. And now this shit went down and you are the one who has to give them answers. You're the, you're the one that they're gonna look to and ultimately you're the responsible one for everything that went down. Of course, Lynn doesn't wanna hear it because she upset, blah, 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 blah. I have no empathy for you, Lynn. I have no empathy. You deserve all of this. All of your terrible life choices have led you here. Now what? Now what are you gonna do? I know this is not rock bottom for Lynn. She's going to create more situations for herself where she just makes terrible choices. I also know that this is a way to create story for her character. Like this is a way for us to get insight into one aspect of, of uh, I almost call it Green Arrow, that is not it, of Black Lightning, but also Lynn's just, just sucks. Lynn's terrible, <laughs> Lynn's terrible. She has a lot of promise to be very, very smart, but she doesn't know how to use that in, a, in like a street wise way. It's just, it's very annoying. I have no um, empathy for her. But so yeah, Lynn's going through it. Uh, Jen, very little Jen, this episode. Kind of nice. It very much circled around Khalil. Uh, Jen's still dealing with her emotions and not being able to do what the hell she wants to do when she wants to do it. And then we also have Khalil come into like a crisis of consciousness now. Uh, I, I, I don't get this circle back with Khalil myself. This doesn't make any sense. Like he gets a whole... Um, what's the word? Task. He gets a task from Tobias where he's got to kill the reverend or the preacher who is running the clinic and the clinic is the last property that Tobias does not own. So Tobias is actually the backer for, for all of these purchases that have been happening around Freeland. He's made it look like it's these white people trying to get in and gentrify the area, but it's really him trying to gentrify the area. So he's trying to get this last parcel of land, but the Reverend will not give it up. So he sends Khalil to go threaten the Reverend and he's like, kill that fool if he's not gonna do it. But instead, Khalil's like, I'm just, I'm just warn him. Like, I'm not, gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna kill him. I'm not a killer. I beg to differ. He let that dude fall right in front of his face and just walks away. And that dude was dead. So, you know, he also killed Black Lightning. That's two, anyway. But Cleo's on this kick of how he is not a killer. And this also comes very conveniently after he learns about the fact that Tobias is actually the one responsible for him being paralyzed. How he didn't put that together in the first place, the world will never know, but sure. So now he's got extra hate towards Tobias. He doesn't think it's a good idea to keep teaming up with him. He doesn't know how to get out of the situation he's in. He gets into a fight with Tobias, gets his ass kicked by Tobias. So added animosity is coming. I don't get this Khalil drama that we're getting because there's a very, very simple way for him to get out of it. And that's easily to team up with Black Lightning. Very easily to team up with Black Lightning. But I mean, I guess they're trying to drag it out so that Jennifer has like added fuel to her own insta angsty arc that she's got right now. Cause Jennifer's not really doing shit. She's just being at home and being mad and trying to figure out how to deal with this power. So I don't know. I don't know. I still don't think Khalil's gonna turn a new leaf. I don't see Khalil 
just being a good guy all of a sudden and joining Team Lightning. I don't see that happening. I don't. I don't. He's either going to die a heroic death of some sort, like sacrificing himself for Jen, or he's just going to stay bad. I don't. So I don't care. Anyway, moving on. The biggest story of this latest episode was the Anissa storyline with Jefferson. And that was learning about South Freeland. There we go. Learning about South Freeland. South Freeland, they made it like a rural, very rural area. And it's broken into two groups. You got the black people that are calling themselves the Purdies, and you got the white people calling themselves the Sanjis. I don't know why that's happening, but it is. So they create a history where... But rooted in real history. So I'll give them that. They talk about how, you know, the Purdies, the black people there, basically have started living out there and kind of living on their own out there uh, as descendants of slaves that used to work the land there. And then, you know, when they got freed, they didn't really leave from the area because this is the only area they've ever known. They just decided to, you know, live on their own. Feud happened. Very easy to see how that feud happened. You know, you got former slaves living near... Former masters, territories, hatred, racism. Very easy to see how this feud would start. But then we give us a random story for the Sanji side, which is that this these white people were like heavily addicted to opiates, but stopped being addicted to the opiates when Looker came and saved them. Looker, mind you, supposedly has been there for the last 30 years. How long has the opiate crisis been a thing? Has it been 30 years? Either way, supposedly she's cleaned it up and she's done so by injecting these people with some kind of silver fluid that she emanates and can control from her body. It's very Alex Mack, this silver fluid. Like it's, it moves and it just moves things around. She's like an evil Alex Mack, um, except maybe not full Alex Mack because Alex could melt her own body down. But this looker, she uses it for reconnaissance so she can put in other people and then she can glean what other people know or learned while this stuff is in them whatever so that's happening and she wants full control of her little group apparently her group is starting to splinter there's a lot of people in the sanji community who don't want to be connected to her like this in a, in a very crazy slave masters type of fashion um apparently one of those people was the dude we saw in the previous episode with his pregnant girlfriend so apparently they were romeo and julietting it and uh, she got pregnant and then he got killed. So I thought the Sanjis killed him, like hit a, his group of people. But it turns out it's actually somebody from the Purdy side. So there was this black guy who I don't even know loved this main girl. This girl, her name's Anaya. I don't know if he loved her or so much that he just claimed her. But he was like, she didn't choose me. So <laughs> therefore this white guy had to die and he killed him. I don't know. It was a very loose, loose little ravel we got with that. But it happened. So Anaya has twins. She ends up uh, having her babies. Anissa's there to help deliver it because the boyfriend, a.k.a. his name was Deacon, told Anissa to go help Anaya because he knew the babies were coming right before he died. So she had gone out to go and help Anaya. Homegirl was smart because the last time she went to visit, she got the fuck out there real fast because it got real crazy really quickly. She puts a tracker in her shoe so her dad knows where she's going to be. And she goes to try and help Anaya. She does help Anaya. She helps her deliver. She, this girl ends up not having just one baby, but two. She has twins. And these twins both have some sort of meta ability off the bat. Their eyes change color. It gets really interesting and weird, but adorable at the same time because they're a little infant. Anyway, 
losing track. So Looker realizes that there is something similar to what she's got out there in the world, but it's not connected to her. And she's trying to figure out why this is. They find out after kidnapping the baby. It can, oh, that's right. They kidnap one of the twins because it's CW. She finds out that somehow one of her sacred Sanjis got with a party and now they have these babies. And after, after she tries to insert her own silver stuff into the baby and the baby clearly turns it off. Like the, the baby's eyes change color. And that she like, she was like, not today, bitch. No, no, thank you. Hilarious. But she's able to get information from the baby. Like she knows there's another twin somewhere that also has ability and we need to get both because yes. So I don't, I mean, I mean, yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot that was happening, but I liked this storyline. I like that we have this like rural area of Freeland. How, also, how fucking big is Freeland? But anyway, we have this rural area of Freeland and we have a whole like hat Sim McCoy situation happening down there. And they introduced a character who like Jefferson was part of the original batch of the green light serum that went through and managed to survive. So, I mean, Clearly, it's not going to end well. She's already a bad guy. She's already trying to control people. So it's not like he's going to reach her and they're going to come to some kind of like nice medium agreement and then just learn from each other. That's not going to happen. So it's a matter of time before he has to face off with her. And then hopefully we get some more information about what's going on with her. And if maybe there's others also that like Jefferson and this girl have managed to survive the original round. But who knows? Also, I want to know more about these babies. What are they going to do now that they've got all these silvery Alex Mackie powers? Very interested. But that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it for Black Lightning. I will be moving on to The Flash right after this. All right, so I'm going to talk about The Flash, and I'm going to combine it with Legends of Tomorrow because they both have, they were both kind of junky foodie for this last episode. So, I mean, Legends of Tomorrow is always junk food. Like, the, you don't watch Legends of Tomorrow for its complicated plot. You, you watch it because you can turn off for, for that 45 minutes to an hour and just have a nice time and get going with your day. And that's kind of what this Flash episode felt like to me. Granted, we got some nice information, but you really could have boiled that down to like 15 minutes. So, here we go. Kicking it off with Caitlyn, we she finally finds her dad. They get they find her dad in a bunker in the middle of the North Pole. Because sure, yeah, that's right. Okay, that's right. But we get the truth about what's happening to her dad. So her dad had ALS. He had figured out a way to stop the progression of his disease. It required him to rearrange some of his DNA, you know. Uh, also required ice and which is very interesting because ALS, that's what the whole ice bucket challenge. It was supposed to mimic what it feels like to have ALS. It feels like you're that cold. Not just cold, but like you have shooting ice pain, basically, because your nerve endings are just going away. So supposedly he was in the throes of battling this condition, trying to figure out a, a resolution for it. He also found the markers in Caitlin, and that's why she also went through a a uh, test treatment. Supposedly her test treatment though was a lot more successful than his test treatment had been. Um, But basically, like Caitlyn, her father has a dual personality, but his personality is icicle (laughs) because 
terribleness. Is that a thing? I think that I think he exists though in the comic series. I think there's an icicle. And now I have to look because it's too ridiculous of a name. It's so dumb. Anyway, so he also has a dual personality that can control ice and coldness. Um oh yep, icicle's a real thing. Oh yep. Yeah. He's real. Okay, anyway, so yep. Um He's evil. He turns out to be straight evil. We had a whole back and forth there for a minute where Cisco was the only one who thought it was weird that he was given this story with a lot of gaps in it. But also that like just how he showed up and like it was it was very convenient and strange how everything was happening at the same time. And at first he's the only one with this doubt. And then he kind of gets Barry into it by like telling him, listen, not everything is going to end with a happy ending. I need you to think critically for two seconds. And he does. And he also has some questions. And of course, Caitlin's just like, no, no, it's my dad, blah, 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 blah. But they kind of brush over Caitlin's worry. And she goes immediately and she immediately kind of like sides with them after a little bit. She's just like, oh, well, now that you mentioned it, yeah, he could be evil. Turns out he is, but we get the return of Killer Frost. So we get the return of Killer Frost. She comes back into the fray. Uh, Caitlin seems to have pretty good control of Killer Frost. So that's something that's nice to see. And they come up with a way for Caitlin and Killer Frost to talk to each other, uh, which is something they've never been able to do before on the show. Like they were leaving notes for each other for there for a little bit because Frost is a personality that completely takes over. So Caitlin is dormant and then, you know, vice versa. But they end up using one of Wells' contraptions so that Caitlin and Frost can talk to each other. I don't know why we need this back and forth with Caitlyn and Killer Frost. I don't get it. I don't understand why she can't just use her ability the way Cisco uses his vibing situation, like Donna costume, go for it. I don't, I mean, I feel like they wrote themselves into a hole by giving her a dual personality and not just letting her go full Killer Frost. So I also don't know why we keep doing this back and forth. This is the fifth season of The Flash? Fourth season? No, fifth. Fifth season of The Flash. And Caitlyn still can't just be Killer Frost. We still have to have this back and forth and maybe so and yada yada. Is it a money thing? Like we can't throw all this money off of the special effects required for her? Or is it a makeup thing? Because I understand they have to do the wig. They got to give her the contacts. It's a full paint down to make her pale as fuck. She's already pretty pale, but she's not she had a paper white pale that she's got to be for Killer Frost. So I wonder if it's also a makeup situation and the poor actress is like, I can't do it every day. Like I can't, I can't do this every day. So we need to think of something. So either way, I don't understand why we need this back and forth, but sure, why not? It's nice to have Caitlyn at the forefront of a story. I don't like that for a lot of the female characters in the show, it's because A, love, and they can never be together with somebody, or B, <laughs> because of an uncontrollable power that they've got and they have no hope of harnessing it. Like that, uh, okay, anyway. Also, Cisco, um, he's still hurting. He still can't really fully use his powers the way he had been able to in the past without getting seriously hurt. He's still bleeding whenever he does something. We had Dibney team up with Cecil, Cecil, Cecilia. There we go, Cecil. Um, and I got an answer as to why Joe's not showing up anymore. So like I said before, it was really weird how Joe was always like sitting down or leaning against something. Like you never saw him walking or doing other things. And then it turns out that the actor who plays Joe, he actually seriously hurt his back. So he's taken a leave of absence so that he can heal. Thoughts out to him. I really hope that he's able to heal fully and is able to come back to the show because 
it is missing a lot of heart without this guy in, in it. You can tell that there's something missing when he's not a part of it. So I'm just gonna put that out there. But at least we got an, I got an answer because I was like, what is going on? Something's happening to this guy. So that is what's going on. Um, but yeah, so we had Cecilia and Dibney team up. Uh, they needed information about, oh, for FEMA from, to get information about the incident that happened when the Thinker satellite plummeted to the earth and created meta objects as well as people. And um, they were trying to narrow down their search field for Cicada and they realized he'd be a father. He would have been the father of somebody affected by that satellite coming down. They were able to narrow down the children that this would have affected. And, but they needed information to get all that. And they needed it from the FEMA files. They go to the FEMA office that's at Star City. And the guy there is sketchy as heck and is just not having it. And at first, it seems like Cecilia loses her entire cool because she starts like stuttering and going off crazy. But then it turns out, it, no, it's just her empath ability. She was feeding off that guy. He was nervous, which meant they were hitting on something real. So they had to go back. She does her cool thing. They get the information they need, bum, 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 out. And now they're able to run that through some sort of database and narrow down their search field even more. So they're getting closer and closer to figure out who Cicada is. We have the Iris, Nora, and Sherlock situation. Not much was happening there. Nora was trying to bond with Iris uh, now that she thinks her mom is cool and she got a better story of this existing Iris rather than getting mad at the future Iris who's not there. So there's that. Sherlock uh, felt like he was dealing with too much and <laughs> didn't need to have all this happening at one time. To be fair, he was right. But um, also, it, he's annoying. So they found that they found the satellite. So them working together, they figure out where the satellite is and they bring it back to Star Labs. Cicada, I don't, I'm already tired of this villain. Like at first I was like, ooh, okay interesting and then the fact that he was chris klein i was like oh nice throwback okay seeing a familiar face very cool but he's very much giving me like dark knight syndrome like he's speaking very gravelly and low he's usually squinting at somebody he's also dying cicada is dying he's got a piece of the satellite embedded in his chest but he needs it there in order to maintain the strength that he's getting from this thing and to be able to continue to kill all the metas that he wants to kill so you know decisions i'm very confused with the doctor information we're getting as well with this because you've got this doctor who's obviously looking after his daughter she knows that he's doing something insane we find out she knows that he's cicada she knows that he's full-on murdering people and she's just like do what you gotta do like i don't understand she they had a whole moment where she was like yeah do you think i'm happy about these metas i just had to stitch up somebody from somebody who can push blades out of their hands. And that was one of the first early fights that Cicada had for the episode. He killed this woman um, who had blades for hands. So it kind of, it feels like the doctor is like, listen, I don't like Metas any more than you do, but I'm not sure if she's full on board with his murder plan or if she just feels helpless because he's on a murder plan. So I don't know what's going on with this doctor or why she is so tied to him right now. She's like, I too am looking at this little girl and hoping that she gets out of it. Why? I mean, yes, it's terrible. This little girl is in a coma in the hospital, 
But also, why did you get so involved? Why are you so attached? What is the other story to this? I have a thousand questions and we're getting no answers. So that's great. So that's, that's wonderful. Moving on to Legends. And that's how basically how the flesh ended. So nothing really big. Legends of Tomorrow, though. Again, junk food. John is in dire straits after the previous episode, which was like a nice little throwback to like Swamp Thing and Jason mixed together. Um, they were dealing with a magical entity that was sucking the life force from children. John, in an attempt to help one of the kids who seemed a lot further gone than the other ones, he wasn't coming back after they got rid of the witch, decides to drain his own life, siphon his own life force to give to the child to help save the child works but now john is dying because he no longer has life force so ray has to get in touch with nora the only other witch that he knows uh which was a nice little reunion we all know that ray has feelings for nora that's why he let her go they had a whole little moment in the previous season in real life the character the guy who plays ray and the woman who plays nora they're married they're a married couple in real life and for me that kind of takes away from the storyline i mean i'm all for ray i love his boy scoutness how he's a blindingly good heart for the show. But like this Nora situation, it's kind of like, I don't know if it's because they're already married. So you're like, well, they got together. Like, it's because it's not them. They're not actually Ray and Nora. But I don't, I'm just, I don't care about this, this relationship that's trying to happen. So whatever. He gets Nora, Nora helps. Nora gets John, uh-huh. yeah, John back on his feet. Ray figures out a way to create this life force for her to siphon through technology versus having to use her own. So there's that. She also had a little bit of a crisis of consciousness. She didn't want to jump back into using magic because her dad died so she could have a clean slate and not use magic, uh, which again, I felt was a little short-sighted because the reason she learned magic for her dad was so that she could become the host of a demon. So it wasn't like she was dabbling and it got out of control. Her dad sold her to a demon. So I don't. I didn't see the parallel, but whatever. So, but she ends up doing what she got to do. She ends up turning herself into, um, I don't even know what their agency is called that they use, but uh, the Time Force agency. She turns herself into them. End of that. We also get, oh, their main overlying story, mind you, uh, was talking about Director Honda's, Director Honda's first movie. So it's a tie into Godzilla, like how in the 50s? 60s? Oh god, I'm terrible. I want to say 50s, 60s. Yes. Uh, the original director for Godzilla. How he got his idea, how that came to fruition for him, and what he was trying to do. In true legend style, they white people that shit and basically tell him how to do his job. So, and that's not a knock against legends. They <laughs> believe it or not. That's how they end all of their episodes. Like, going back to season one where they're dealing with somebody who's insanely talented and creative and they're like, oh yeah, they didn't think of it on their own. We taught them this. Yep, legends. So anyway, uh, we have Honda who created a story about Tetsumo, which is a land octopus. It's a giant octopus just demolishing things. Uh, he wrote it in this special book. So it's a book that was given to the, given to the humans by a muse, apparently. So whatever you write in it, comes to fruition, comes to life until the story is completed. And depending on how you end that story, it's either going to be great or terrible for the world. And for Honda, it was terrible for the world because he had the octopus win. It was 
Instead of using Godzilla as that primary piece, they put this octopus in there. But basically, it was his retelling of how Japan is surviving after post being bombed, post the atomic explosions that happened around him as a kid. So, like in his story, you know, it's basically, and it's true of Godzilla too. It's basically like a reworking of Japan. Like, I don't want to say a cleansing because that sounds terrible, but just like a start over type of situation. You have something huge and insurmountable that comes. It kind of wipes the slate clean, and now everybody has to start over. Granted, they're starting from scratch, but now they can start with a better consciousness kind of thing. So. You see him kind of dealing with that. And then at the same time, to parallel it, we have um, Mick, who's also going through his own kind of writer situation, right? Mick in the, was it last season? Last season, we find out he's been writing a lot of fan fiction, sci-fi fan fiction. And he's good. Apparently the story's really just good. In his story, he's got an Amazonian-esque warrior with three boobs, who is blue who's just fighting intergalactic beasts um, and also having apparently great sex in the process. So so um, the book stops working for Honda, but it starts working for Mick. So Mick has to write the ending to this story in order to get rid of this octopus. And he puts his star character in it. She kills his octopus and then she has sex with Mick because of course he would write that in there. Very true to his character craziness and then mick is the one that gives honda the idea to use lizards yeah okay also we also had it was mostly that it was just legends going around that we had more interaction with charlie charlie uh basically is walking around in the amaya face right now i still don't know what they're doing with charlie exactly it's very weird what they're doing they had her they had her locked up for majority of it She's given them the full scalding of morality when it comes to just making brass decisions or judgments on something without, without looking into the reality, I guess, of the situations or something. I don't, I don't know what she was trying to say. I also didn't care. So that was happening. Um, we also got... Oh, we also see on the... I keep calling him Nick. I don't know that that's his actual name. Nathan. Never gonna, I'm never not gonna call him Nick. So Nathan, Nathan's side of things. Uh, him and Ava are still doing their stuff on the, the Time Force Agency side. He uh, is working out of DC, so he's close to his parents since Thanksgiving. So they're like, come on down, and Agent can, you know, Agent Ava can come with you for dinner. And he's like trying to warn her against it. He's like, it's gonna be hellish. It's terrible every year. Like, <laughs> don't expect anything. They get there naturally there's an emergency that happens back at headquarters so nathan decides to go back and figure out what's going on they've been rounding up mystical creatures at the agency and it's in a prototype holding cell so naturally there's a flaw in the system these creatures get out and now they've got to stop them from like getting into the you know the public what was cute was that we got to see Mona again. So Mona's the food girl who delivers sandwiches and other orders as required for the agency. She's already been flashy thinged. So she already lost her memory for some other stuff that's gone on. But um, in this case, she ends up being very, very useful. It's very suspect that A, she was not freaking out when she came across these creatures. B, knew exactly what these creatures eat. Like she knew exactly how to sate these appetites of these creatures. And C, realized that that was the problem. Like that was what was going on with these, the, the mystical beings that they were rounding up. 
It's not so much that they just wanted to get out to cause havoc. They were starving, so they needed to eat something. And she comes up with a pragmatic way to get them fed so that they can get them back into a holding cell. And it works on top of it. And so according to Nate, this also means that she is going to be a part of their team moving forward. We get a nice little moment between Nate and his dad, played by Tom Wilson, a.k.a. Biff Tannen. And it was it was nice to see uh, some more understanding happen between them as a family. And then we get the the golden part of this this episode for for everybody, for anybody who is a fan of Back to the Future. We all thought the same thing when we saw him show up on the screen, Biff Tannen. He says the iconic line. He says it wrong, but that was purposeful. So if you know anything about Tom Wilson, you know that he hates Biff Tannen. <laughs> you know, he hates Biff Tannen. Uh, he did a standalone or a stand-up series show series something he did a live stand-up show uh basically recapping his life as an actor like he talks about what he why he got into the business what drove him into acting why he enjoys it so much why he also got into painting uh which he got into painting after doing back to the future because he couldn't he found himself boxed by playing the character Biff Tannen for so long because he did all the movies. He did every single Back to the Future movie, just like Michael J. Fox, just like a few of the other side characters. But he was such a cornerstone to that film. And he just got tired of being recognized as Biff Tannen or only getting roles that also kind of were very similar to being Biff Tannen. Like, he hates it. He, at least from the last stand-up special, he had very complicated feelings about Biff Tannen. So... I was hoping for a Back to the Future shout out, but I really wasn't holding my breath for one. So when we got it in this episode, he makes a nice little throwaway line to Nate, like after they have everything kind of resolved at the agency, he's like, we should make like a tree and leave. And that's the correct way to say that phrase. But the whole running joke for Back to the Future is that he doesn't say it that way. He always says we need to make like a tree and get out of here. Like that's, that's how he always says it. And Nate points it out. Like after he says we need to make like a tree and leave, Nate goes, I don't, I don't think that's how you say that. But okay, let's go. It was cute. It was golden. It was a wonderful little moment there. Nice little shout out to Back to the Future. And then it got real sketchy immediately afterwards. So we find out that Nate's dad has been keeping tabs on the Time Force agency and knows about these mystical beasts and has to uh, basically has a plan to weaponize them to figure that out. He has it like, it's called like Project Hades. And he immediately spots a handler. So he's already familiar with how to get this plan into action. And it's already been in action, apparently, because now he's like, it's a go. Let's go. I figured out how to do it. Sketchy as heck. Definitely going to come back to bite him in the butt. Uh, Definitely going to wreck whatever trust he's building with with Nate right now. But it's going to be great television. So at least that. At least that. That's going to sum it up for Flash and Legends. Like I said, it was pretty much rinse and repeat. Nice little fluff, nothing too heavy, nothing too crazy. Nice resolution for Caitlyn and her dad. Nice to see Mick get a win, albeit it got really messy really fast, but it was there. And I'm gonna be moving on into Titans right after this. Hey there, listener, this is Joe, AKA the Curvy Geeky Fangirl, and I thought I'd take a minute to let you know about another podcast that I do with a friend of mine called the People of Culture Podcast with Shay Cherie Show. So that podcast basically touches on anything culture 
through the perspective of two women of color. So we give our opinions on a lot of different things and we discuss a lot of different topics that's not necessarily only revolved around geek culture. So if you were in the mood for listening to another podcast or to add another podcast to your list, you should definitely check us out. And that is The People of Culture Podcast. You can also find us on our website, thepocpodcast.com. Okay, so I'm jumping into Titans. Titans also, um, short and sweet, because I felt like this episode was filler. I also feel like I am taking crazy pills because whenever I look at the ratings for this, it's like crazy high. And I'm like, are we watching the same show? And then I realize the rating protocol is that it's votes. It's votes from the public. And I'm like, that's why. So that's, so I am not a TV critic. And everybody knows that. You can see how I frame the my thought process on all of these shows when I'm doing my recaps. Definitely not a film critic. But I am a fan of watching a lot of these stories. I'm a fan of stories. And I know a bad story when I hear one. So Titans has a lot of promise. There's, I really love the Doom Patrol episode. That's by far, that has been my favorite episode. And I think that's because it introduced characters I wasn't familiar with. But up until now, this show has been slow, so slow. I don't like that you can't binge it. I don't like that you can't binge this type of show, especially as slow as it moves. I feel like it would be better in a condensed, bingeable 10 episode go. It's only 10 episodes, but we're getting it week to week for some strange, bizarre reason. And I feel like it's hurting it more than it's helping it, at least for me, because it gives me way too much fucking time to question everything that's happening in the episode and whether or not it's actually worth it to happen in the episode. Honestly, if you only watched the first episode, and you know, even, even if you skipped Doom Patrol and just jumped into the episode that we just got, which is episode seven of the series, you would have missed nothing. You wouldn't have missed anything. You would have just seen an episode about Rachel and Dick with a hint of Starfire. Oh, and a, and a hint of Beast Boy. And then you would have just been like, and now they're a team. Like you wouldn't have missed anything in the in-between, like, which is crazy. That, for like, that means for six other episodes, it was filler. Like we, they just strung it out for no reason. Why? Anyhow, okay. So the episode that I didn't talk about was the previous episode where they met up with the Atomic family. Uh, now fully functional again. They got their dad back. Not the same dad. Another guy they tortured into being a agent for them. But they still sucked. I will give it to them. The family fighting as a unit, pretty terrifying to have like this 14 and 16 year old, just like cold calculating, beating you in your face and winning, terrifying. The mom's calm demeanor, not even blinking when stuff is like embedded in them. And they're just like, anyway, so are you gonna come with us? Anyhow, that was really good, but it's short lived. Like we don't get a whole lot of it. And then we go back to the fighty fightiness between everything. Well, the only thing I really, really can't get behind is why Dick Grayson is their leader. I understand in the lore of DC Comics, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, these are these are the titans of that of the DC of the DC series. They're the major three. So having a uh, I wouldn't be a predecessor, almost like a descendant, a sire, if you if you believe it. But having a second from one of those groups to be the natural leader of this next mix up of people. 
makes sense. Except it doesn't to me. I understand they're trying to say that out of them, Dick has the most experience in so, you know, protecting himself, trying to be you know, investigative prowl, you know, powers, whatever. He's got a better history at that because he was trained to be this type of operative. Okay. Except that he just comes across as crazy whiny and really bossy for no reason. Like he does, he tells them to do a lot of shit that they should not have to do without backing up anything. And I mean, we get moments where we see him kicking ass. We see him going full throttle, knocking the shit out of people left and right. But still, I feel like Starfire, Beast Boy, hell, Raven, any one of them could take him out. And I feel like that you're not supposed to feel like that. I think you're supposed to see Robin as an equal to the rest of them. But as it's set up in the show right now, it doesn't feel like that at all. The only thing he's got an edge on with them is his ability to control himself right now. That's all I see is the difference. Starfire hasn't doesn't ha have any memories of her past. She's still working out how to work her abilities. Same thing with Raven, same thing with Beast Boy. They're working out how to deal their powers. Whereas Robin knows how to weaponize his ability and use it as a, use it as a function in that same way. So, but I don't understand how that makes you a leader. So, but also to be fair, they're not necessarily a team just yet. There's still a, a random group of strangers who got together and are trying to figure things out as they go. They just know it's kind of centered around Raven. Dick got into it because she showed up at the precinct and she knew stuff about him and blah, 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 blah. They kind of bonded. Starfire is after her because that's the only thing she can remember is that this girl is important for some reason and all the stuff she's found to give her more insight into her history also revolves around Raven. And the only reason Beast Boy's there is because he's crushing on her. So there's that. Uh, I still am not a fan of this Rachel storyline. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I understand we need to build up the lore, especially some people are saying the show is for the fans, but other people are saying they still have to frame it for people who are not aware of everything that's going on. I'm not necessarily a fan, but I did love Teen Titans, the animated series, but Cyborg was a part of that. But, um, I feel like you, even if you didn't know who Raven was, you know now, you know that she's part of a darker entity. You know that she's got this crazy ability and you know that she's wanted. So I don't think we need to go any further. Supposedly they find Raven's mother. Okay. Um, I, I have trouble trusting that that's her actual mother. They find a woman in a cell at this asylum that they're at. And we're supposed to just believe that this is Raven's mom. I, thousands of questions. Thousands of questions. So this basically was the asylum episode. Uh, the previous episode was a base kind of around Jason Todd. Dick gets in over his head trying to get information from whoever this leader guy was that sent the atomic family to come get Raven. Gets his ass kicked. Hard. Jason Todd shows up and kicks everybody else's asses. Saves Dick's. And saves the guy that he was trying to get information from. Takes into a safe house owned by Bruce Wayne. They have this weird back and forth, Dick Grayson and Jason Todd, about what it means to work for Bruce, like what it means to be Robin for Batman. Is it bad that I love Jason Todd? Like after, after that episode, he's a psycho. I'm not, I'll give it to you. He's crazy. There's a whole part 
where like he's just he's just super stoked to be Robin and at first it's easy to be dismissive of it as him just being excited to be a part of Batman's life but that's not why he's excited to be Robin he's excited to be Robin because he gets to put his life on the line on a nightly basis and kick the ever-living shit out of people that's why he's excited and he's he has no qualms about it he's very honest like yeah this is what I love so like and I love that Robin's like or Dick Dick Grayson's like that's that's terrible but low-key, it's also why he liked being Robin. Not necessarily, you know, no, all of it. Yeah, no, all of it. Kicking the ever-loving shit out of people on a nightly basis and putting his life on the line. So he sees a truth of himself in, this, in Jason, but he doesn't want to admit that just yet. So it was nice to see that kind of back and forth. Um, I also just love how honest Jason is. He's just like, fuck it, yeah. I get to kill people. It's great. Like, it's just... Insane. He's crazy. It, you, I would find it really hard to believe that you don't know the lore of Batman in this particular Robin. Jason Todd has a very special place in Batman lore because he's the only Robin to die. I think Damien also died, but he has come back. And spoiler, spoiler, extra spoilers, Jason comes back. So there's that too. But he was one of the few Robins where they opened up, I think it's he was the one, where they opened up a vote and people near unanimously voted for him to go so i don't know if that was him or damien it might be damien now that i'm thinking about it damien wayne anywho either way so i just like that this this jason todd was just like yeah i'm embracing this darkness and you are struggling so enjoy that bye and leaves so we get to this new episode where team titan here has decided to get more information from this man. Um, it didn't work though, so there's that. And then this man decides he gonna kill himself in front of uh, Raven. So this is the whole point where he's like basically telling Corey that he's not talking to anybody but Raven. And then Raven, Raven finally gets over there to talk to him and he's kind of talking about her dad, just like how he's supposed to be this great being to help cleanse the world. And then he cuts his own throat. And Raven stops him and brings him back like she did with the deer. She helps, she, a few episodes back, managed to bring this deer back to life after it lost its life. <sighs> I'm not sure why she did that. And it turns out the better in the ass later because they end up getting captured and being brought to an asylum. Or no, they, or they capture just Raven. Something happens because she ends up at the asylum. And then Team Titan and crew also try to go get her out of that asylum and get caught and get tortured. So that was this episode. This episode was a filler on how to torture each individual one. I don't know why we needed that so soon. It feels like it's so soon, but it's episode seven of 10. So really they need to round it up right now, but I'm not sure why we waited till now to do what they did. So basically we had Beast Boy cornered in a cage where they were poking and prodding him and pushing him to a limit he's never had to be at before. This results in him full on murdering somebody for the first time, which is not something that Beast Boy does at all. I don't, definitely not in Teen Titans. And he even went on record in a previous episode talking about how he's never been anybody. He's a known vegetarian slash vegan. He does not eat meat, uh, but he's faced with his torture and a, and he snaps, he just, lo as soon as he sees the guy, he turns into a tiger and goes after this dude and mauls him to death. And then is kind of freaked out about it afterwards. But I mean, also that happened. We also have Raven have better control of her ability. So she's had this whole sit down 
with the dude who killed himself and then she brought him back and he's basically threatening her he's like listen we're gonna keep continuing to torture your friends and maybe kill your mom who by the way is alive but we could end her at any time uh unless you agree to meet your father or speak him into existence something insane and the whole time she's just like i don't understand why she was entertaining any of it he wasn't giving her any actual good information to my knowledge, maybe she got, well, she found out her mother was alive, but that was, she still had to search to find out where she was anyway. But basically it results in her finally getting fed up and, and a very cool move for the show, I will say. It was a very cool move for her to go full Raven, dark eyed, demonic looking Raven and tell him like, you know, I know you tried to take your life and I saved it, but now I'm gonna take that action back. And he dies. And his, his throat opens right back up and he dies. To be fair, she didn't kill him. He already did this to himself. To be fair. And she also knew nothing was going to happen. There was no way she was going to be able to negotiate anything. Homeboy was crazy. Out and done. We also had Starfire being experimented on. They knew that they had to deplete her before they could do anything. That was very interesting. So they have her, they put her in a situation where uh, they want her to use her ability. They have like these grids set up to absorb any heat that she refracts. But she, she continuously stupidly does it knowing that she's in a full dark space and can't regenerate anything. Depletes herself. And then that's when they're able to go in and experiment on her. They have her fully tied to a table. I'm not sure why they put this thing in her mouth that they did. It's not like they numbed her up. She can feel everything, but okay. So they have her incubated, full thing cutting her open, trying to see what, how she's working, what makes her tick. They realize she has a healing factor that's really, really fast. I think that's as far as they got before crew came back and saved her from being tested on. So there's that. Raven manages to save her mom. She saves Beast Boy. Together they go and get Dick out of his room. He was trapped in his head. That's a scary place to be. Oh my God. Oh God. Any Batman character. That's a terrifying place to be. But they managed to get him out of that. He manages to, to kind of face his demons and get out of that stupor. They go and save Corey. They get her out of the table. Uh, mind you, they're all battered, broken, and bruised. So that's happening. But they still got to fight their way out this place. We get a nice little scene where Robin takes on all of the security officers, very much like how Jason Todd had to do it with the police officers. And he goes ham, like Jason Todd did with the police officers. And they make their escape, made it outside. We're about to call it a day. Next episode. <laughs> We didn't get a whole lot of story forwardness at all with this episode. And it's episode seven. I couldn't believe it was episode seven. And then I couldn't believe in my research, I realized it was only 10 episodes long. We only have three more episodes taking us into like maybe mid-December. And then it's done. And then it's done. I feel like if I had waited to watch this and once all 10 episodes were aired so that I could binge it, I might have a more positive attitude on the show, but because the show is so slow, so slow, each episode, and it takes so long for each episode to drop, for me, it hasn't done it too many favors. I mean, I'm still intrigued by the show. I'm still going to watch it. So, I mean, it has aspects of really good storytelling. They're just not consistent and take too fucking long to get to. So, I mean, there's that. Um, 
did I see the preview for next week? I don't, they, I know there's a preview for next week, but I that this show is just so exhaustive. I don't even remember what it is. So who cares? Anyway, moving on. So after Teen Titans, oh, real quick, let's talk about American Horror Story: The Apocalypse finale. I'm very confused with this season. I'm very confused. Some reviews that I have seen, you know, actual professionals who critique TV series for a living fucking loved it. They think it's like the greatest thing since like the first season. They really loved how everything tied together. They loved the throwbacks to American Horror Story. Um, oh, Coven and Murder House. They love those tie-ins and they just thought it, thought it was handled so well. I disagree. I disagree. But then again, I feel like American Horror Story, as, as much as I loved Coven and Murder House, I'm, I keep forgetting how up and down it was for everything else. This show is, well, is this the 10th season? It's been on for some time. It's been on for a long, long time in TV years. So maybe I'm remembering something that never was actually there. It might be something that I felt was there and wasn't actually a part of the storyline at all. But either way, the way this ep- the final episode ends, I mean, it was sort of satisfying, but also kind of not for me. Like, I, the highlights for me, the best parts of this episode were finally getting a resolution about what was going on with Michael and seeing that get summed up. Finally getting a fucking answer about those kids that we saw at the very beginning of the series who then just died. And we're like, what was the fucking point? What was the point of them? Why are they here? We finally get an answer for them. Uh, which basically was that, you know, they also can herald the next Antichrist. But I'm also not sure why we needed them in the house. Because Michael was still alive. I'm, I, that, so I take it back. I don't understand why we needed them in the first place. It's nice to have that, to see them in the beginning. Because when they show up at the end, you're not like, who the fuck are these people? You're like, oh, that's right. These were the kids from the beginning. But I felt like it did very little to explain why we needed to see them at the beginning. As the apocalypse is going down, why did we need them? Because uh, Michael was already at the helm of this apocalypse going down. So why did we need this couple? Or maybe we didn't need them and that's why he killed everybody at the end. So I don't, more questions, more questions. I didn't like that ending. I was like, okay, that's weird. There is a point where Cordelia Mind you, we've been talking about the fact that Cordelia is going to have to die in order for the next Supreme to live the whole fucking series. Finally realizes that she's got to. She's fi- she finally sees she has to die in order for them to beat Michael. Uh, they've already declared that uh, What's-Her-Face has to be the next Supreme. I don't even know what her name is. I also don't care. I know it's Billy Lord. The real actress's name is Billy Lord. But for the show, I forget. No, it wasn't Fiona. That's something else. That was another witch. I don't remember what her name is. But anyway, that basically, Billy Lord's character has to take over as Supreme. But in order to do that, Cordelia's got to die. So they put, they get it in a situation where it's seen, the witches are already falling really fast. Madison sacrifices herself to give more time to Cordelia um, and Billy Lord's character to get everything done. They're trying to get Billy Lord's character to travel back in time to try and stop Michael before he gets to power. They're having trouble with that. Billy Lord's character gets um, wounded and she starts dying in the tub before they can finish the spell. So, oh, and, Mer- and Myrtle is there. And it's uh, just a race for them to figure out how to get this done. 
out of all of that, we also see another familiar face show the fuck back up, and that is Marie Laveau. So in the midst of the fact that all these other witches are dead, apparently Cordelia was able to make another deal with Papaleba to trade souls. She needed Marie back, and if she could get Marie back, he could take Dinah. And I, I guess they were trying to say that this is how that happened with Nan. Nan didn't get a say. And uh, Fiona and Marie basically traded Nan's life to get more something. And that's what they did. So that's, that's what happened. So Marie kills Dinah and takes her place so that she can stay there and help um, Cordelia and them. I screamed when I saw Angela Bassett show up. I was so excited. Her intro to come back into this episode, mind you, it, it was the finale, but she's also a very busy lady. She's doing lots of TV and movie. She's busy. So I'm just glad they were able to get her for this episode. But it also felt kind of wasted. They finally get her. She has this epic come in. She kills Dinah. And then she goes back to being like powerless again, like almost immediately. It's terrible. She faces off against Michael. Michael like almost instantly kills her, but not before she can get at least one last final hit in on him, but then she dies. Uh, we also get Cordelia giving a very epic line to Michael before she dives off of the stairs to save Billy Lord's character. I, Which, I'm not gonna lie, it brought a tear. It did bring a tear to my eye when she was telling him, your dad might be the devil, or you might be the son of the devil, but my sisters oh no she said you're the devil only has one son and my sisters are legion bitch and then died <laughs> i'm not gonna lie that if you want to have last words those were it that was and the face she's making when she is staring michael down i loved it granted she didn't have to dive off these stairs but getting that last word in with the full trust and belief that the next Supreme is going to be Billy Lords' character, because that also was a guess. We weren't sure if Michael was gonna take up that mantle or not. The hope was Billy Lords' character was going to. But you just see, you see her just being like making peace with it and then fucking going. That was awesome. But I don't think having Marie Livo back and that epic line was enough to save all of the episode. Because it was a it was a mess. It was a mess the rest of the time. It took too fucking long to get to this point because they were in back. We were, we were looking at the flashback forever for a good six episodes. So this finale, we see Billy Lord's character finally make it back in time. She gets in a car and manages to kill Michael uh, when he's like when he has just aged up. So he went from being like six to being a full like 20 year old man. So we see her fully back over this dude in her car and then drive forward over this dude and then back up again to go forward again in this on the, in her car on this dude. And you see, uh, what's her face's character? Oh no, what's her name? Everybody was super excited to see her. That's not Angela. Ugh, oh, Lange, something Lange. Oh my God, how could I not know her name? Anyway, basically you see the mother, the grandmother of Michael show up and she has a, there's a moment where he's like, grandma, take me into the house. Uh, you know, so murder house so that he can stay with her. So his ghost can stay with her forever. And she's just like, no, no. Like there was a whole moment prior 
where she flips out and is just like, I can't believe Jessica Lange. Gosh, Amanda Lange. Jessica Lange, her character. She has this whole moment prior to all of this after he has his age up and kills the latest priest where she's just like, you're a monster, I need to go, blah, 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 blah. You're evil, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then he gets hit over with that car and he's like, grandma saved me. And she's basically like, fuck you, bitch. And leaves him in the street to die. There we go. End of story. And also, apparently, Billy Lord's character can now not travel back to the future. So now she's either she chose to live in the past or she's stuck in the past. So you see her make her way over to her coven's house and is so excited to see Cordelia again. And she hugs her and she can't wait to be enrolled in the school. She sees all her friends again who are now alive because Michael hasn't had the chance to kill them yet. So she's super excited to see all that. Um, she figures out a way to get Madison. Or no, she doesn't. She's like, Madison's in hell, you know, but she's tough enough to stick it out for a few, <laughs> a few more weeks. I'll go get her later, basically. Um, I think she manages to get... Uh... Oh, no, not Nan brings him. There we go. I figured it out. Nan brings back Misty. So Misty comes back and Cordelia sees Misty and she sees Nan and she gets super teary and excited. But Nan's not sane. She's been having too much fun with Papa Legba. She likes torturing people down in hell. It's, it's a whole thing. So she got to leave. Uh, but Misty's back and it and they kind of end it like that. So like, you know, uh-huh, Cordelia's back alive. Billy Lord's character is super excited to get everybody back to where they were. Yada, yada, yada. End. End of episode. I don't... I, we did, I feel like we got a lot of filler to get to this. There was no way to rope in the male witches at all. I feel like there was a wasted opportunity with the male witches. Yes, they were catty bitches who just wanted the other witches to die. Sure. But I feel like with the hope of having um, Chablis... What's his face? No, of course I don't know any of their names. But by having Cheyenne Jackson's character and Billy Porter's character, there there was a hope there to have a mixing of the two at the very least. But um, no, apparently not. We're just going to keep them separated. But yeah, and then it just ended. So I don't... I'm glad to see some familiar faces. I'm glad to see uh, some resolution in regards to Murder House and even Coven getting some answers there about what's happening with their happily ever after mind you it wasn't all of the characters but i'm also sure evan peters was like i'm not fucking doing everybody i'm not (laughs) i'm not bringing back every single fucking character pick the ones you want that's it so there's that you know okay but i'm sure anyway it's done but now it's over so who cares all that's done so moving on I think that's it. That's, yeah, that's it for my DC TV and American Horror Apocalypse. I'm going to be talking about Midnight Texas right after this. Hey, it's Joe, a.k.a. the Curvy Geeky Fangirl, and I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to this podcast and also to ask you to rate, subscribe, and comment anywhere you hear this podcast because it really helps me out. Just let me know on what it is that you guys like to listen to or what you think I should skip over. You can also reach me through my social medias. I am everywhere as Curvy Geeky Fangirl, with the exception of Twitter. Of course, Twitter has limitations. So take out that A and take out that I on Fangirl, but you'll still reach me that way. You can also hit me up at my website, curvygeekyfangirl.com. All right, so I'm going to be merging Midnight Texas and these Netflix Christmas movies into one because you know 
like the Spice Girls said, when two become one. I need some love like I never needed love before, you know. So anyway, uh, I'm really enjoying Midnight Texas. So Midnight Texas is another like junk food-esque type show. I would say it's a level above uh, Le- Legends of Tomorrow. So it's not as silly as Legends of Tomorrow. Uh, I would kind of put it in like, kind of like the Arrowverse. It's definitely dark. So kind of Arrowverse-y, not v- Vampire Diary-ish. I would give it that. It's Vampire Diary-ish of, uh, of the series. We're dealing with a lot of supernaturals. We're dealing with a very interconnected storyline that they're throwing at you. So you've got our team of supernaturals. We got a witch. We got a vampire. We've got an assassin. No supernatural effort there. She's just a woman who kicks a lot of ass and gets hired to take out people. We've also got a psychic. uh, And now we have a healer and his wife. We also have an angel who's married to a half demon. So there's that. Uh, But now that half demon is MIA. Chewie's gone. I don't know what's going on with him. So we've got all these characters uh, trying to make it work in a place called Midnight, Texas. And they all have their own little storylines of what's going on with them individually. And then we have the overarching storyline that ties them together. I'm a fan of that setup of having like these little mini stories for your character, but having an overall storyline for all of them to be enrolled in. And that's what we're getting with the show. The last episode we got before the Thanksgiving break uh, involved a were tiger. So there's that. As I've been talking about in previous episodes here for my podcast, I find it very interesting the pairings that they've done for the promo pictures for this new season of Midnight Texas. So this is the second season of Midnight Texas. I mean, Bobo and Fiji are still together. And that was from the first season. Lem and Olivia are still together. And that's also from the first season. Joe and Chewie were together. So that was the angel and the half demon. But Chewie's in none of the promo pictures. Instead, it's his human demon slayer named Walker, who's like leaned up on him. So I'm like, we haven't seen a whole lot of him, but we already got the moment where there's something more than just friendly demon slaying happening between the two guys. Clearly, like, Walker is into Joe. And Joe's kind of feeling Walker, but he's a married man. And he's faithful. And he stopped that shit immediately because he's Joe. But it's concerning me that Chewie's still nowhere to be found. So how are we going to explain the Chewie situation and then the Joe and this Walker situation? I don't see Joe cheating on Chewie. I really don't. But I can see Chewie taking a break from Joe. So I'm sure something's going to happen where he's dealing with his demonness again. And that leads him to being like, no, we have to stop. We can't be together. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Um, and, instu- and instead introduce this white man named Walker into the fray. I'm not 100% against it. I love Chewie and Joey. I love the Chewie Joe story. It was so cute. And just very refreshing to not have them be this couple that was doomed at the start and then one of them died. Like they were already married when we met them and they stayed married. (laughs) They just kept working at it as a couple. Like that was great. But now they're trying to change that dynamic. I don't know if the actor is just moving on to other projects or if they just want to switch out the storyline or what, but they're giving us this Walker storyline. No, I would normally be against it because we are getting rid of a minority character. Chewie is Latinx and introducing this white guy. But I kind of like how they're framing this guy to be. 
Walker is this cowboy, rugged, killing demons as a living guy. And he likes Joe. It's interesting. It's very interesting. So I'm interested to see where that's going to go and how that's going to happen. It's in the works. We know it's happening. We haven't got there yet. There's been little hints, but it's coming. We got uh, Fiji and Bobo situation. Bobo is continually still in trouble. We finally got answers as to why Bobo's in trouble. And that's because there is a curse on Fiji's family. We don't really know how it started, but apparently the women in Fiji's family, once they find love, that person that they love and who loves them back is doomed to die. They're gonna die. So Fiji's aunt figured out a way to save her love. We find out Mr. Snuggles, the cat, is actually her soulmate. That's actually the man she loved. And she had to turn him into cat in order to (laughs) stop him from dying, basically. So Mr. Snuggles is actually human trapped in a cat's form. So that's happening. And then we see Fiji try to come up with like a memory spell, basically to erase herself from Bobo's memory so that he won't fall in love with her anymore. And therefore she can keep doing what she got to do. You know, just be like this angsty, I can't be with the one I love type person, but he'll be alive. She's like, cool, I'll make that sacrifice. I gotta give it to the show for having Bobo still be interested in Fiji because that's not how the first season played out at all, at all. The whole first season was about how he was feeling some kind of way about this other woman he loved and had proposed to who showed up murdered. She just, she had disappeared and died and everybody was like, what the fuck is happening? We knew Fiji liked Bobo, but we weren't really sure like how Bobo was just yet. As the season went on, Became pretty clear, Bobo liked her. And then that like turned into love, it was very cute. But I liked how when they basically gave him a start over for Fiji, he just can't stay away from her. He's obsessed. And not in a stalker, well, kind of a stalker way. Cause he, like, he's like, as soon as his memory gets wiped and he sees her, he starts flirting with her, like, <laughs> like immediately. And then when he sees her again, he's like, yeah, so what I gotta do to get these digits? Like basically just kind of like not giving her space. And then he shows up at her shop and it's like, so how about them digits? Like, <laughs> it's just like any other situation come off creepy. But because it's Bobo and we know there's a history and they're playing it like this is something that feels very familiar for him and that's why he's doing it the way he's doing it. It kind of works. And then he also gets his memory back. Like as soon as he starts talking with her more, I think when he touches her, the memories come back. And then he's like, what the fuck? So I'm like, <laughs> it's a whole thing. And then we find out to save him, she has to turn him into a dog. And I feel that's appropriate. Turning him into a golden retriever. If he had to turn to an animal, it's gonna be that one. Bobo is is definitely the definition of a golden retriever. He's just this lovable, loyal, (laughs) very sweet, I don't wanna say docile, but calm, calm dog, golden retriever. So, or was it a lap? No, I think it's a golden retriever. I don't think it's a lap. We'll find out. So that's happening. That's happening over there in the Fiji Bobo corner. Olivia and Lem were taking care of a were tiger. We find out were tigers. Um, first of all, they burst out of uh, bellies. So apparently, the, the storyline we got was like this human woman was on the run. Um, when they catch up to her, mind you, post mortem because she's pregnant with this were baby, and then when she has the baby, this baby like explodes at her belly like alien style. So she died. But she had all of these 
marks on her from being handcuffed or having a collar on her neck. So they know that she was kept somewhere and they're not sure what's going on. Plus this baby clearly is in danger. So they get this little infant and immediately Lem is in love. He finds this little baby. He gets everybody around, but he's so in love with this little baby. When we, then then we see the baby instantly start to grow. So the baby goes from being an infant to like a toddler to like a preteen in the matter of hours. And they explain it away with like, oh, that's what weird tigers do. Like they, they just grow stupid fast to like about 18. And then they age normally like the rest of us. And I was just like, what the fuck? So I'm not sure why that was the storyline. I'm sure it helped with them in the production process of all of this, getting a baby uh, hours to have a baby on set. That's gotta be murder. So aging this baby up fast to an acceptable age for work, I'm, I'm sure it made fiscal sense. So let's go ahead and do that. I don't even know if in the story, that's what how that happened. Maybe that's how it happens in the story too, but it was very weird that they were like, yeah, we're just gonna make it to you. I pregame, go, done. We get a nice little side story about a gypsy traveling group that enslaves supernaturals and make, a, make them fight each other like a fight club. We got were tigers, we got banshees, we got other things, vampire. So I also loved that Manfred constantly got checked uh, in this episode. All the first season was about how he came from this long line of gypsy royalty? Fanciness, fancy gypsies basically. And like they're super powerful and they're known to be super powerful. Like he had a, a deal with another I don't know if this guy was Gypsy too, but he had to deal with another guy. That was that whole episode in the first season where Manfred actually had been engaged, but it was like a long con him and his grand were playing. And it resulted in this poor girl killing herself. Like at first he thought it was because of him, but it really was because of her dad. It was a whole thing. But I couldn't remember if that family was also Gypsy because they knew about Manfred or if he just was obsessed with magic and knew about Manfred's lineage. And that's why he wanted his daughter to marry Manfred. Something of that nature. But I also love that when Manfred's stepping, like he, when they kind of get into the storyline of this poor baby were tiger, Manfred recognizes the tattoos on one of the ghosts that's hanging around the baby. So uh, as soon as this girl becomes a preteen, these the men that had captured her mom come after her and she makes quick work of killing them. Much to her very, very shocked self, but it happens. So there's a ghost that li- that lingers around and it's a gypsy as Manfred discovers. He recognizes the tattooing on him. So he's like, yo, you're a gypsy, I'm a gypsy, which in Manfred's head apparently meant like he was just gonna unveil all this information. And instead this gypsy guy was like, fuck you, I don't care. And like, leaves <laughs> with his body. Manfred has to negotiate with him he's like listen i can leave you in this this slab at the corner at the corners and you can freeze your butt off forever or you can help me and i can identify you and get you on your way so you don't have to stay in the cold and that's how we find out about the fight ring and then manfred meets up with the leader of the fight ring which i said to be another gypsy and she also was like fuck you i don't care like this <laughs> I love that him being a gypsy gave him no edge in what was happening with everything else that was going on. It was, I liked it. I thought it was a nice, funny moment because the first season was all about how special his lineage was. And then here we are with other gypsies and they're like, fuck you, we don't care. So that was a thing. We also had Manfred and Patience get together. 
I don't know how I feel about this. So like I said, promo pictures have Manfred and Patience kind of paired up. And we finally see the culmination of that happen. Manfred and Patience have been spending a lot of time together. They get along really well. And we find out that Patience is really lonely. Like she's married to Kai, but he's constantly gone. And he's always has these young women around him. So she's dealing with a lot of trust issues, a lot of isolation issues and loneliness because he's never there. And then we've got lovely Manfred and his fantastic face, just ready and willing and helpful and smiling. And there's chemistry. And it leads to a kiss. And it's like, okay, kiss, whatever. She breaks it off. She's like, I'm a married woman. I can't do this. Do it. Not especially not this way. He's like, oh, absolutely. I understand. But then they have this moment that's supposed to be a heated moment. Like after she's left, she's like pacing his front porch and then decides to come right back. And it's supposed to be a moment where like they lock eyes through the window and then follow each other to the door and then he opens the door in order for them to have this passionate kiss but when they got to that part of it like for me the chemistry went away it it very much felt like I was watching two people who were ordered to do this and then they played it out like that's like it was I don't want to say it felt like she was being held against her will but it didn't feel natural and it definitely didn't have the same same magic it had with him and Creek, which is saying something because I was not on board the Creek train. I was not a fan of this relationship, but they definitely had a lot of chemistry and they made it look really natural. Like, yeah, this is how we feel about each other. We're making it, we're making things work. So I also don't know if that's because, or at least my perception of this chemistry being lost is because of how they got to string this out for the rest of the episode. Like, it's a shortened series, but it's not crazy short. And I'm not sure like what this means moving forward. Like, are they gonna, is, is he the new Suki Stackhouse? Is this Charlene Harris? Is he getting a new girlfriend every season? Probably, probably. I'm trying to figure out how, cause we know it's not gonna work. It's a doomed relationship. We know any kind of moment that Patience and Manfred have It's going to be in between them hiding it from Kai. I find it hard to believe that they're going to come to a resolution about Kai, get Patience and him to be separated somehow, and then Patience and Manfred, you know, riding off into the sunset. I don't see that happening. I also don't trust Patience. I know I'm with Olivia. I know that Fiji did her little spell or whatever to see if Patience intentions were pure, but I feel like that could have been anybody's hair or Patience is also a crazy strong witch. I don't trust her. She wears a lot of white. She wears a lot of it. I think that's grounds enough to be very critical of somebody. So there's that. Um, What else? We also have, I'm looking at the wrong notes, but we also have, no, that's pretty much it. We had Manny and Patience. We had Fiji and Bobo. We had Lemon and Olivia. Me wondering where Chewie is. Like, where? where is that? Oh, I had to mention the Albi that played in the background. So after Fiji breaks up with Popo, there's a whole moment where he has to say anything moment. And he's got his, it's not even a boombox. It's a cell phone. I think it's a cell phone and a speaker. And it's playing Edwin McCain Albi. Unless you were a teenager in 1997 
you don't understand the resonance that that song has. <laughs> you don't understand the importance of this song. When that song came out in the sweet, sweet age of 1997, it was everywhere. It was at every school dance. I'm sure it was a prom theme for many a place. That song blew the fuck up and it was everywhere. It was in TV shows. It was always on the radio. It was constantly on a mix CD of some sort. <laughs> it was always at a dance. It was everywhere. And it's it's a banger of a ballad, let me tell you. It's a great song. But hearing it pop up and having it having that song be his choice to get Fiji back, I love this show so much. So, so, so much I love this show. So that was going on as well. But that's pretty much it for Midnight Texas. And like I said, it's a lot of, it's a nice little it's a nice bit of fluff. A lot of people have left. Rev is gone. He supposedly got cured by Kai and is out. Creek is gone. Um, they had to kill Creek's brother in the last season, so he's gone. So that's leaving us with like this the core group of supernaturals. Olivia and Lem, Fiji and Bobo, Manfred. And now this patience chick that's showing up. Oh, Joe and Chewie. But we have barely seen Chewie, so I don't know what's going on with that. I thought we were going to get another episode this Friday, but I forgot that that would have been Black Friday, and they would not have planned to have a new show on one of the busiest shopping days of the year. So not another new episode until next Friday. But I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait. I can't wait to see what's going to happen there. Uh, which is just going to bring me over to the Netflix movies that have dropped. So in case you don't know, Christmas is coming, guys. Christmas is almost here. And um, because of that, we've got Netflix specials or Netflix movies that are dropping that are very Christmas themed. Not only do we have the Netflix originals, but they're also posting up a bunch of other holiday movies uh, that got released to them. Harlequin, if you're familiar with them, Harlequin is a an, an romance publication publisher publisher i'm gonna say that one they're a romance publisher so they they are no they are known and associated with romance novels those anything from the cheap fast paperbacks you get at like a dollar store to like your grandma's grandmother's serious situation of getting a series of books all of it i grew up on harlequin and i found out they made these christmas movies and netflix has two of them on to available to watch and devour as needed uh the netflix originals that dropped we had the princess switch with vanessa hudgens and then we also had another one i want to call it the advent calendar but i don't know if that's what it's called let me see as i continue to look because i'm never prepared but yeah, so they have those two. And then the Harlequin book movies, we have the Christmas Wedding Planner that's on here. And we also have, oh, let me get back to it because I'm terrible. Christmas with a View. Yes, the sound plain and regular. Yeah, they do. They do sound plain and regular because they are, because they are. So I don't know where you hold your expectation when it comes to Christmas romance movies. If you love Hallmark, what is it, 31 days of Christmas, I want to say? 30 days of Christmas, 20 days of Christmas, something in days of Christmas, where they just launch a bunch of romantic-themed Christmas movies at you. You will love these. You will love these, and you will take it in because it is magical. Like me, don't question it. Don't think too hard into them because your brain will hurt. But 
they are there and they're wonderful. Oh, I wish I had the other one. Where is it? Or this other one might be terrible. And that's probably why I can't find it at all because I just dove it into the deepest, darkest of the, of Netflix. But basically, um, I really enjoyed The Princess Switch with Vanessa Hutchinson. <laughs> I really loved it. She carried that movie and she kind of had to because the writing, who that writing was very interesting. The story is, is, is pretty straightforward. You got two princesses, guys. And guess what? They switch places. No, it's not two princesses. It's very Prince and the Pauper. So you have one version where uh, of Vanessa Hudgens' character, where she is a baker at a Chicago bakery. She just got out of a serious relationship and she's very regimented and organized. She doesn't like veering from a plan. She's not spontaneous in any way. And she doesn't understand why everybody wants her to be that way. Like she doesn't get it. She's also sad. So you have all that. And then she, her sous chef, AKA her best friend, uh, kind of ropes her into doing this bakery contest in a made up country that very much sounds like Genovia, but it's called something else. Bulgaria, something. Um, it's a fake bakery contest run by the royalty there. And um, she gets to rub elbows with some of the elite. She's not really down for it, but it's something to take her mind off of everything that's going on. Especially after a very embarrassing meetup with her ex. They make their way out there. Her best friend also has a daughter who's just very lively and spunky and adorable. And so they set off to go do this competition. In the midst of preparing for the competition, she meets this princess who looks exactly like her. And this princess is also the opposite of her. She's a lot more spontaneous and she's looking to have a little bit of fun. She is promised to be married to the reigning prince of this place. And she's not excited to do it because she finds him boring. She also wants to be in love. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's your typical stuff, but with some familiar faces. So they do the switch. I'm not going to lie. I enjoyed the montage we got between Vanessa Hudgens and Vanessa Hudgens trying to pretend to be each other. Like (laughs) it is corny. Oh, it's corny. Oh, it's campy. But I loved every minute of it. It was really cute. I like the meetup. I like how they both fall in love (laughs) with their perspective, guys. I love the diversity in this. I love that Vanessa Hudgens was a main character. I love that one of the lead love interests was a black man. What? Yes. And that the adorable daughter was a black, little black girl. So cute. I loved everything. I loved all of it. And then, which is saying something because their other original Christmas movie, which I still can't find in this thing oh my god is it bad it must be terrible because it is buried deep in this thing i watched it but i don't remember it i mean it wasn't a work of genius so i mean there's that if i do another search it'll come up come on work with me here so anyway they have another one based oh there it's called it's called the holiday calendar it's got cat graham aka bonnie from vampire diaries I gave it a thumbs up because I was just very excited to have a Christmas movie, a Christmas romance based around a black woman. I was just very excited for that. I also love that she was of a mixed race ethnicity. Like, and they didn't shy from that. Usually when you've got your, you know, your black lead, they only show black parents, even though this person is not necessarily just of two black people. 
Cat Graham, especially, she had, oh, I want to say her mother is what? She's of mixed ethnicity. She's biracial. And they incorporated that into the story. So she had a black father and a white mother in the story. And then she also had a sister and it was adorable. And it was a whole thing. So I love that we have this diversity and this inclusivity in this Christmas movie. It's very nice. Holiday calendar, though, is a slow go. It is not, I mean, it's just as campy and corny as the Princess Switch, but I feel like I had way more fun watching the Princess Switch than I did watching the holiday calendar. Like, it's got some stagnant moments. You're like, wait, why is this happening? It also takes way too long to get to its point sometimes in different scenarios. But I mean, cack around. So it's one of those things. Take it or or leave it. it. I mean, it. It does hit the spot if you're looking for a good Christmas romance movie. It's going to be there. Uh, Christmas with a View. I also already devoured that. That's the Harlequin movie one. I liked it. Again, it's another slow burn, though. So it's not It's not going to be super fast. And it's not even as funny as The Princess Switch. It's more like the holiday calendar where you're slowly but surely following these characters. And then they slowly but surely get to their point, And then they slowly but surely get together. Uh, I liked the story. Okay, I will say though, for with Christmas with a View, I had a lot of questions and they just didn't fucking answer them. Like the main girl who does this, I want to say she's also of mixed ethnicity. I think she's Hapa. I think she's half white, half Asian, maybe. Is that important though? Kinda. So the reason I bring it up is because... Uh, we see her like getting stuff ready and then she's talking to her mom and her mom is Vivica Fox and they don't explain the relationship at all other than that's that's just her mother like that's just her mother and they make comments in there like that's her mother's firstborn child like she's her mother's firstborn child and they just don't explain anything else like how Vivica got there like what <laughs> what, the, what the father looks like nothing they don't explain any of it you just buy that Vivica A. Fox is her mom and she's just she just has a black mother because of course yep no explanations and nobody questions it in the movie they just write it and i'm like all right okay movie okay movie you get you all right i'll give it to you i will give it to you because that's bold that is bold as heck that's bold as heck so for for that alone i made me like christmas with a view i also really enjoyed christmas wedding planner christmas wedding planner is a little more sillier it's more on the same keel as uh, the princess switch it's a little sillier it's a good time. Just as campy, just as corny. It's another Harlequin movie. Uh, we're dealing with a private investigator because sure, it's still Christmas themed, but we're dealing with a private investigator. We're dealing with like a a quirky, kind of awkward lead character. I'm a fan of that. I'm a fan of those types. And um, basically their, their rise and fall of, of being together. Like, you know, the initial meet, not so super easy. And then them kind of getting into a groove and then them starting to feel things for each other. And then the inevitable fall for the inevitable rise. So we get all of that with Christmas with a view. I I liked it though. I really liked it. And there's a bunch of other Christmas movies that they're slowly but surely pushing out there. And I'm not going to lie to you. I probably have seen them. I have seen a good portion of these. I've already seen Christmas in the Smokies. I've seen a holiday engagement. I've seen the spirit of Christmas. That was a movie that it took me three watches to like it. The first time I watched The Spirit of Christmas, which is not a Netflix original, um, 
I didn't understand it at all. I was like, what about this? It's Christmas. I don't get anything. And then I watched a second time and I was like, okay, well, okay, okay, maybe this. Maybe I was jumping the gun and being too harsh on it. Third viewing of it, I was like, okay, it's good for what it is. It's fine for what it is, which is just like a, let's put a ghost spin on the romantic tale. We're add a, we're add a moral to it, and but still make it a romance. Boom. All of it. But I love all of them. I love any kind of Christmas romance movie. I don't care how campy corny it is. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch it. I might critique it later, but I'm still going to watch it. And I'm definitely going to watch it more than once. So that's what's happening right now. I'm collecting Christmas movies to watch. Uh, getting ready for the holiday season that is now here. That is now here immediately. I am one of those people who get their Christmas decorations out the day after Thanksgiving. So trust, my house is already prepared for everything that's going down. So all of that to say, uh, that's going to wrap it up for the Curvy Geeky Fangirl podcast. Thank you for sticking it with me because I know my posting schedule is very interesting. But hey, we're here and I got this out. So I'm hoping next week is going to return a lot of the, a lot of the shows I'm talking about. I'm hoping we're going to stick to a regular schedule without any other breaks in between and go from go from there if you guys are catching a show you think i should be watching hit me up you can definitely reach me at on twitter as curvy geeky fangirl i can't talk curvy geeky fangirl remember to take the a and the i out of fangirl because i had character limitations when i was creating that name um or you can reach me at curvy there's an email link there too curvy at gmail.com i'm also still posting stuff up over at forallnerds.com you can definitely check out stuff there there's ways to make comments on that as well and that's pretty much gonna be it i hope you guys have a great week i hope you had a wonderful thanksgiving and i'll talk to you later bye